0: verse 1, chapter 1 through verse 7 this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near, verse 4, endeavor. Amen. Verse 7. There's another amen. There's two. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and every, even those who have pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We've broken the first chapter up into three parts, and and we'll call them the the introduction, um, not just of chapter 1, but of the whole book of Revelation. But again, just for the the purposes of chapter 1, it's broken up in in the introduction, which will be this week, the the description, which is the description of Jesus, which Dave will talk about next week, and and then the interaction with Jesus that John, the the revelator, uh, has with Christ. And so this morning, our our job is the introduction Of Jesus. So this is the introduction of the Christ we worship and just kind of a show you my cards on, on the front end if you haven't seen the theme already. It's, it's that he is a king, not just a king but he is a coming king. Uh, this uh, particular seven or eight verses does a really intentional job to put him as uh, glorious and, and, and sovereign ruler and in a word a king. Uh, so there's there's a few things then inside uh, the introduction, just for the sake of an outline. The introduction is our job this morning. There's four big things that we're going to see, and we're going to camp out on the last one, uh, the writer of this book and and the messenger from God, and, and therefore we will spend the most time on uh, there, his description of Jesus uh, inside this Trinitarian benediction. Okay, Two very spiritual theological terms, Trinitarian to Trinity, it's theirs, it's Trinitarian it's just theirs, and uh, the benediction is this blessing by the Trinity, and then it kind of turns, and it's almost like John is writing them, and then it's a blessing back to the Trinity, and again, his focus on Jesus, therefore, our focus this morning will be on Jesus. But That's the fourth thing. The first three things I'll hit really quickly because there's so many things for the sake of study and context, and I'm going to do a really good job rushing through the first three and really camping out on the last one, and the first thing that we see in this book is a clear purpose a clear purpose. This is not the covering or the hiding. This is the revealing. The, the word apocalypsis means revealing, to make it known. Uh, when we read uh, Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, for example, and even Daniel in chapter 12, uh, he's he's told this. It says, but you, Daniel, shut the words and seal the book until the time of the end, right? And so when we see prophetic in uh, time apocalypses or, or, or revelation in the Old Testament, they're still kind of veiled, they're still kind of hidden, and they point us to future revelation that, in the book of Revelation itself, connects some dots, and, and to prove that, or we see this in Revelation chapter 22, this is kind of the, the time is now, so he tells Daniel, the time is not yet, uh, so shut up the book and seal it, right? Well, then in Revelation 22, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Believers, Christians. The angel says, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the book, for the time is near. So so God's doing something over here, gives us a little bit, but he says, listen, seal it up, and and, and the time is not yet, right? And most of those prophecies point toward Jesus, Not not the culmination of the redemptive plan of God, but certainly the climax, right? But there's still more to be revealed. But we've kind of been waiting, making do with some veiled uh, uh, prophecies and and revelations, but here we are in the book of Revelation, and God is literally saying the time is now. I'm coming soon. Tell the world, and so all that to say, this book is not a hiding. It's not it's not predominantly mysterious, although we were tempted to believe that. This is a book that we can, and I would say, must understand, because the time is now. and And why would God reveal something to us that would that would mystify us? the rest of our time here and my point is he didn't we can and we again must understand this unveiling of revelation and he even says blessed are happy are those who read it and hear it and obey it." and you can't obey it unless you understand it the second thing we see is so we have a clear purpose is to reveal it's not to hide and make everybody frustrated all right uh it's, it's to reveal and it's to give us encouragement for the churches because it reveals that there is a plan continuing. That's an encouragement whenever we feel like, when are you going to come back? It's an encouragement to the church. Second thing we see is the correspondence, who it's from, uh, who it's to, and we see basically in a nutshell it's from God by way of an angel or a messenger, same word in the Greek. It's about Jesus, so is Revelation about the end times? Uh, It does have that effect, but the revelation, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. This isn't about end times. By way of explaining Jesus and and depicting the life and the rule of Jesus in heaven and soon on earth, it ends up giving us details about how this whole world will end. But John makes it very clear, the, the, the Spirit of God, this messenger, makes it very clear from the beginning that this book is about Christ. This book is about Christ, and by revealing Christ to us, yes, we do find end time timelines and things to expect, and all kinds of really interesting, kind of even creepy things with eyes and horns, and, and all that can be understood uh, to a certain degree. But it is about Christ, and we see that it's through John. Uh, This human author who uh, is is probably between 80 or 90 years old, and he's stuck on this island. Maybe you you know this, but he's been exiled. This is a form of persecution, and really not even just persecution, though it is. It's also a criminal punishment to be exiled to this land, this island called Patmos. Uh, John was historically, uh, they they attempted anyways, to boil him in oil uh, to kill him, and he continued to preach and to sing while the oil uh, around him boiled. Uh, so somehow the Lord miraculously preserved John, or he just has really thick skin, or, or who knows, but, but he didn't die. And so they said, we can't kill him, so we'll just get rid of him. And so they, they banished him to this Isle of Patmos. And it's, it's really paradoxical. It's really kind of like God. You think Christ, the King of Heaven, in a, in a manger, like we see this most clearly at Christmas, Right? Well, kind of the same way you have this, this old feeble man that, that isn't around the church and he's locked away and he's, he's been banished and in exile. And God picks that man to reveal the most glorious heavenly revelation in all of history. And so you're going, man. why would you do that? Again, using the the, the weak things of the world to confound confound the strong, right? God just has a way of doing these things and somehow getting from that island these letters to these churches and to the church. It says to the churches and also the bondservants or the servants of Jesus, and that's Christians. So that's kind of the correspondence, who it's from and by whom and about who and to who. That's us and through who. And so we see the clear purpose, the correspondence, and we see the caution of the book. And this is important to set the stage, is the coming of Jesus. The caution of this entire book of Revelation, not just first chapter, is the coming of Jesus. The word for I am coming, or I'm the coming one, is used about nine times, and you could argue ten, in the whole book of Revelation. And, And out of the nine times we'll say in the whole book, Jesus uses it of himself seven times. Jesus being One of the narrators, even the authors of this book, speaking to John, tells John directly, I am coming, I am coming, I I am coming. This is a constant caution throughout the entire book. We know that in the Bible that there's over 500 references to Christ's return. In the New Testament alone, one of every, in terms of percentage, one of every 25 verses Depicts the second coming of Jesus. So, so the, the book of Revelation is simply continuing something the rest of the, the Bible, and, is, and especially the New Testament, has been doing all along. And it's, it's kind of ringing the bell as loudly as possible that what I've been talking about is real and my coming is soon. It's kind of an impending rejoice and an impending judgment happening. And we see this later in, in verse Uh, 3 and 7 and and Jesus coming will be in a sense the the best of days and the worst of days and we're told to whom and it says that those even those who pierced him will see him every eye will see him coming from heaven even those who pierced him now who pierced him was the Romans obviously right like they did it uh, well, Scripture makes it very clear that while your sin and mine hung Jesus on the cross, he's talking about the Jews, even the Jews who, who despised the, the covenant of God, who should have been the first to see the Messiah coming, who, who did all of the work to, to twist the story around to make the Romans crucify him like only the Romans could have done. It's the Jewish leaders whose blood Christ's, uh, who Christ's blood was on. And Peter makes that really clear in Acts 2 and 3. So even those who pierced Him, and John is writing to us saying, even the Jews will see Him. And then the pagans will see Him. And, and it, it seems as we read uh, that little chunk of, of, uh, uh, in, in the Greek that both will mourn. Certainly the pagans will mourn and all will mourn. So if, if the Jews are going to mourn, we, we know that in Zechariah 12, we're given a promise that many Jews will come to faith. Because they see Christ coming, they will mourn. And that mourning will be a cry of mercy. We see this in Zechariah 12. It says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. This is repentance. So praise God. We see a, a promise that many Jews' eyes will be opened and when even they, even they who pierced him will see him coming that they will mourn But it'll be a mourning from a broken heart and a broken, uh, in a blind eye, and they will repent and they will see him as a savior. And then others, pagans. It says all nations, separating the two audiences. So you have those who pierce, and then you have also all nations, all pagan nations, will mourn. And possibly this is a reference to First Kings chapter eighteen. You remember when Elijah was was taunting the prophets of Baal, and he's going, okay, maybe he's on a break. Maybe he's using the restroom. How come your God isn't responding? And, and in order to get their God's attention, they mourned and they cried out and they, they cut themselves. And maybe this might depict more of the mourning and not repentance, but just anguish that the nations will have. So for some, it will be the best of days. Even their mourning that turns to repentance leads to life. And it will be the, the worst of days. Christ's coming is is a glorious day. It is a happy day for those who either believe or are willing to repent. And it is a, a very bad day full of judgment for those who will just simply see him and know the truth and in anguish know that they're trapped in their their sin. And they, that audience, will receive the judgment of Jesus. So we know that that this is a caution to be ready. This is a caution to believe throughout the book. So we have a we have a clear purpose, the correspondence, Christ-centered benediction, or we have the, the caution. And the last thing that we'll camp out on is the Christ-centered benediction. And this is, just real briefly, in, chapter, in verse 4 and into 5, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come. This is the Lord God. This is God the Father. And then the Holy Spirit's represented as the seven spirits before the throne. And you're going, I thought there was just one Holy Spirit. Now, there's already three gods. Why are you throwing seven Holy Spirit's in there, and He's not. He's just He's depicting either the fullness of or the sevenfoldness of the Holy Spirit. And there's there's some scripture in Revelations five, like we'll read in a minute, that helps you understand this. But but uh, fret not. The rest of Scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit is one, and, and being one, He is also one in nature with God the Father. So that hasn't changed. That's not a new revelation that that changes what we know in Scripture. All revelation, particularly in Scripture, will confirm what we know about the rest of Scripture. Right. It's a key to Bible study for us, but it depicts the either the fullness of or the sevenfoldness of the Holy Spirit. So now we get to the Son. That was introduction. We made it. Now we get to the Son. He continues this benediction. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. That's about as brief as the other ones were, but then he continues. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. After acknowledging his, his, his life, perfectly lived in obedience, when he says he was a faithful witness, and then he references his resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, and Christ. Uh, revived several people. the The prophets in the Old Testament revived several people, and they would go on to die. But Christ is the first to be glorified and and, and completely resurrected to live eternally. And so, after referencing his life and his death, he's described here as a king. He's described here as a king. The rest of Revelations will make this really clear to us. Revelation 19, 16 says he's a king of kings, right? Lord of lords. We know that one. Even John back in his gospel says in chapter 1 that he's a king of Israel. A couple chapters from where we are now in chapter 14 of Revelation, it says, Behold a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head other places call it a uh, the, he has many diadems and diadems are kings crowns so you have this revelation of Jesus Christ not just with a crown of a king but all of the kings of the earth crown on crowns on his head that's a clear picture isn't it he's the king of all those who believe they are kings he's the lord and master of all who would ever presume authority over anyone he will rule. This, this revelation alters the way they worship. Imagine getting one of these original letters as one of these churches. Imagine getting one of these letters as it circulated past these churches into the churches and the church and, and even Willow Bend Church. Does this letter, this revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, through a Holy Spirit-inspired writer named John, does this revelation change the way that we look toward our future? Does it change the way we worship Jesus to us? And it certainly would have then, and, and I would hope that it, it has not diminished in effect today, that this revelation affects the way we, we worship. I, I think even more so to the first church, that the the 80 years after Jesus had died probably felt uh, like longer than even the 2,000 years for, for maybe some of us who have lived a short period inside of that time, because they saw Jesus or, or or heard firsthand accounts of Jesus saying it would happen soon. and you could imagine this letter might have been even emotionally more encouraging to them than, than even to us, who we were all born into this whole concept of he says soon, and we think that means that's that's the next thing happening, but but still he said soon, and and, it, and it's still waiting. And so we're trusting the Lord, that it's still soon. That's all we can do. That's all we should do is that it's soon. And, and he may even let me finish my sermon. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of be good either way. I'd prefer we just go now, honestly, as much as I am excited to continue sharing this with you. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to keep going then. He's coming soon. And this would have been a massive encouragement to the church. He hasn't forgotten us. He is coming again. Not just again, but, but it says that it's, it must happen, and it must happen straight away, soon, quickly. To keep us on our toes, right? Keep us ready. They knew Him originally as a God-man, and they see Him here as a God-king. They, they knew Him originally as the one who quietly received the pagan taunts and influences. And even until the pagan cross son of man is going to be born on this earth and the way he's going to go out is by a pagan cross and he suffers it quietly here he's revealed however as a coming king who will judge and punish and even pay back evil this would be encouraging to them this is the Jesus that the disciples even wanted from the beginning even during times of of his life and ministry toward the end where you might hope that they're growing in maturity they're getting it even uh, in Matthew, after the transfiguration, Jesus says, take a quick look at me. Okay, now I'm back in human flesh. And he shows them his glory. And then not, not minutes or maybe hours later, one of the moms of the disciples says, listen, I baked you this cake. Tell you what, what if you made my son sit on your right hand in your kingdom? And he's going, oh my gosh. It's not about here right now. It's about, it's about there. And, and they, they couldn't see... His, his, uh, his coming kingdom happening later it had to happen now, and they couldn't understand that he was going to have to be a suffering servant before he would and could even come as a conquering king the way the Lord had planned it. A theologian named W.A. Criswell says this, and I tried to make this shorter, but it's really good. The last time that this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a criminal, crucified on a Roman cross. That was a part of the plan of God, a part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our Lord. By His stripes we are healed, right? But then is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior dying in shame on a cross? No. It is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, blaspheming, godless world shall see the Son of God in His full character and full glory and majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of his Godhead. Then all men shall look upon him as he really is. And in this vision, here he is, here he really is, in the glory of heaven, a king before John. What's interesting to me is that this isn't John's first glimpse at Christ in glory. Uh, Jesus in the transfiguration had shown him, and, and if you read a little bit uh, before the transfiguration, you realize this is really interesting. He he pretty much uh, depresses them and, and makes them reconsider their, their commitment to him by saying, if anyone would come after me, he would deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Have you ever heard that? If you didn't know those words, that's essentially the commitment you made when you follow Jesus, that we put down our life and we pick up a torture and, and murder instrument called the cross. Meaning, if it takes me going to a cross in order to fulfill my witness for you, then, then you're worth even death in this life for I have eternal life in you. That, that's what Jesus, he's, he's raising the bar high enough to say, listen, let's all just, just make one thing really clear. That on this side of things, you've got to be willing to at least, or at, at, even if necessary, give your whole entire life And as long as that's the commitment, the rest is is gravy, right? The rest is very doable. But we go into this thing following Jesus, committing to lay down our life and pick up his cross. And that's hard. And here's an encouragement to those men in Matthew 16. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, Jesus says, who will not taste death until they have seen the Son of Man coming in his glory. And then we go into Matthew 17, and this is where Jesus gives uh, three of his disciples, the closest ones, a, a kind of a, a preview, a preview of his second coming. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, James's brother, and they led him. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And when he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them also Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is a good thing that we are here if you wish. And this is where Peter becomes Peter, and he says something really dumb. I will make three booths or tents here, one for you and Moses and Elijah. And even Mark 9 tells us, for he did not know what to say because they were terrified. So he puts his foot in his mouth, and he just blurts whatever he he is thinking. He tells glorified figures, I'll build you a house. Verse 5, and then God interrupts him. He's like, just stop, right? Watch this. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, this is the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. listen to him. Obviously referencing Jesus, not the others. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Two things. One, how encouraging to them to know that, okay, he is God. He will come. He will be. He has the capacity to be glorified. The father just said, this is my son. Okay, we needed this, all right? We needed this encouragement because remember I have to lay down my life and pick up my cross and, and you keep talking about having to die and man, I, I need to be ready to die too. This is hard. And so to know that you're God and that's just kind of encouraging every once in a while. So there's that. And then there's how Jesus finishes this. Tell no one of this vision. Why? Jesus didn't want to become king at the hands of men for any reason whatsoever. Here, here's what we know. is We know that in John chapter 6, either Jesus told John or the Holy Spirit inspired this to John. And we know Jesus' motivation for not sticking around when massive crowds were following him. He worked miracles, and he was feeding people, and, and he was healing people. And they're going, hey, maybe this guy is even from God. And maybe he had kind of some semi-right uh, motives. They weren't willing to follow him, obviously, but they wanted what he had. And, and maybe he was, in fact, the Messiah. And so they're sticking around. And if he's, in fact, the Messiah, then, then make your, your kingdom happen now. Make your kingdom happen, happen now. And so here's what John tells us. Perceiving Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, and make him king, Jesus withdrew from them, just kind of slipped out. See, Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men and that that we would want a tangible kingdom now. That the spiritual kingdom, the death for sin, the the conquering of of death itself, we didn't quite get that, did we? The, The Jews in particular didn't quite get that. So Jesus reveals himself, says, don't tell anyone or else... They're going to do the same thing they wanted to do back then, and they may have even preferred that he stayed in a glorified form. But first, he had to become a lamb. You could picture a king as a as a lion, right? We're told that Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That Christ is a king; he's a lamb, but or he's he's a lion. But we're also told he's he's the lamb. So, which one is it? I I think Revelations five depicts this beautifully. A little bit further into the Book of Revelation, when things get a little crazy. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly, John says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. It's good news. So that when he came upon the scroll and its seven seals, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, where the elders pointed John's attention to see a lion, he said, I saw a lamb standing as though it was slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of the God sent out to all the earth, the fullness of the earth, the whole earth. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's the Father, so the scrolls and the, the seals, we'll talk about that later. Here's the point. They, they reveal truth about who the believers are. They, they, they reveal truth about the end times and who Christ is. And if no one can open it, then it's not going to happen. Christ is not victorious. We are not saved. And, and who's going to open these things? And so he weeps. And all of a sudden he says, look, a lion. He looks and he sees a, a lamb slaughtered but standing. So which one is it, elder? You're supposed to be an elder. You obviously didn't go to biology class, you know, you don't know the difference between a, a lamb and a lion, but they still made you an elder for some reason. It's because the elder sees the lion in the lamb and the, the lamb in the lion. Which one is it? It's, it's both. In order to be a lion, he had to become a lamb, didn't he? But what's beautiful about the life of Christ as a lamb is he was always a lion. I love this, in John 17, 5, it says, as he prays toward the end of his life, Jesus, and now, Father, glorify me, watch this, in your own presence with the glory that I have never had before. Let's correct that. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was always a lion. Even as a lamb, he was always a lion. Matthew 26 says, Do you think, this is him on the cross again being taunted and ridiculed, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He was always aligned. When we see Christ, we're tempted to miss His, his strength. And what we do is we mistake His meekness for weakness. We mistake the, the kindness as one who couldn't possibly come and judge. But the lion must be a lamb, a sacrifice for our sins. I love how Philippians 2 says that he literally empties himself and becomes humble, humble to the point of death on the cross. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He still had access to it if he decided to cash in on it. We get the idea. His deity was his nature, he couldn't give that up, but what he did empty himself of, as we saw early in Revelation 1, what did it say? All glory and dominion, yours forever, right? All glory and dominion, yours forever, amen. Those are the things that Jesus emptied himself of. If you remember the upper room where Jesus takes off the cloak, bends his knee and washes feet, and then he what? Puts back on the cloak. What is that a picture of? He's taking off his glory and his sovereign rule, in order to be in the form, in the mode of a man. And upon resurrection, what does he do? He takes back up his cloak, and he puts back on glory and dominion and honor. We even get the idea that God gives him a promotion. We even get the idea, as though it were possible, I'm not sure, that that Jesus has even a more powerful name. He has even more glory, more honor for being such a faithful witness on earth. Uh, have you seen the show undercover boss if you've never seen an episode maybe you understand kind of the premise right you have the CEO and and the CEO changes his identity maybe puts on a mustache and a ball cap and he travels to one of his his uh, company's branches or, or or franchise locations and and he acts as if he's a new employee okay so he walks in and and he uh, he get he hires himself he kind of I'm sure he does some things to get himself hired, but they don't know he's the CEO. And, and upon uh, being trained in this new role, he gets to know different managers and he sees lots of problems because there's got to be drama. It's probably all made up, it doesn't matter. But there's drama, there's bad employees, and there's always the really good employees that he's going you're training so well and and, and you' you're in a lot of cases I've, I've seen a couple of myself, one which was a, a single mom and just the challenges of a single mother, but she's a faithful manager and trainer and committed to the company and and so this this undercover uh, boss undercover CEO he he goes for several days and he sees all these problems that you can't help but but just know that he, he wants to Fix right away. And by the way, he is the CEO that hasn't changed. And so he has all authority to fix the problem right away, fire that person, change this process, whatever it is. But he keeps his his identity concealed. And, you know, days later, he, he travels back, he shaves the mustache, takes off the ball cap, and he has the good employees flown to his CEO headquarters in his office. And they kind of see the resemblance and they kind of laugh and they're going, oh my gosh. And unbeknownst to them, they were working faithfully uh, alongside the CEO this whole time. And the CEO pays for their college and vacations and, and gives them lots of gold and things like that. Like, it like just rewards these, these faithful employees. Uh, there's a, like, anyways, don't know where that came from. But here's, here's, here's the point as, as a fake employee, he had all the authority, all the power to fix all the problems he saw on the way. But what was he doing? Something way more important, wasn't he? It was quality control. It was getting to know employees that, that done otherwise never would have gotten to know them and their stories. He's doing something way more important. But what's going to happen at the end of the show? Oh, I'm going to go back. Oh, I'm going to be CEO. And you will re- receive either further training, if you're lucky, or you'll be canned because it's not the way we work here. He will perform the role of CEO in that company because he can't unsee what he saw. He can't be unoffended or unmocked by how his company is being run or managed. But at first, he's doing something way more important, isn't he? Christ, before he can reckon with sinners, he reckons with sin. Before he sets up his eternal kingdom, he must first deal with death. Christ comes as a suffering servant, but let us not mistake the picture of him holding lambs for the fact that he, in fact, is a lion. We have a beautiful one in our church lobby, and I think about it every single time I pass that. Frankly, while it's a beautiful picture, and that is, in fact, the Christ I worship, I just need something next to it that kind of rounds out my image, that reminds me he is a king. And if I'm the, the sacrifice, and if I'm the lamb of God, I'm not going to be looking at a lamb like that. i am be looking at the lamb with pity because I know I am one. He's smiling because he's happy to see the lamb as if you were to look at a puppy dog. But Christ, especially in the temple, when he sees lambs walking by him, he's not going, oh, how cute. He's not doing that because he knows that he is one. So Christ, with all purpose and all plan, Becomes a lamb of God for us, but make no mistake, he was a lamb, became, or was a lion, became a lamb, and he will be, and is right now, and forever will be, and will make it known to us one day by his coming from the, 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 the sky on a cloud in the glory of his Father, that he is a king, and he is a lamb. That is the Christ we worship that is the Christ we worship. While beautiful, our God is a God of war. Exodus 5, 15, 3. While loving, he hates all evil and evildoers. Psalm 5, 4 through 6. While gracious, he will repay everyone for their actions. Romans 2, 6. He will come in the unveiled glory of his Father. And if you remember uh, Saul as he was becoming Paul, when, when Saul got a glimpse on our turf with veiled eyes, like we, were, are we saying about, even the, though the darkness hide thee, Though even on our turf with our unglorified bodies, we can only see your glory so much that it knocked Paul off of his horse. That's why John is about to tell us next week that he was in the Spirit and received this revelation. Can anyone receive this revelation outside of the the Spirit? They may, but they will die. They may, but they will die. It knocked Saul, Paul, off his horse. It almost killed John like we're going to read. Deuteronomy 5 says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness. We have all heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet man lives. That should surprise us. Isaiah 6 says, And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe 'Woe is me, which by the way means cursed, damned, deserving of... Punishment that ends my life. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah writes. Judges 13, Manoah said to his wife, we'll surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering. We must commit an offering to God to appease his wrath. And, And it's really nothing you can do animals were only a band-aid, whose offering appeases God's wrath and not just turns away his wrath, but points his affection to sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Otherwise, the presence of God should utterly terrify us. Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all goodness, all my goodness. Uh, God's. It's okay to be uh, proud when you're an ultimate being and you're God, but I'll I'll show all my goodness to you and it will pass before you and we'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And listen to this. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live. What an amazing confidence this would be to the churches to know that this Christ that we worship, we also wait for, that this Christ who was a lamb who was meek and mild and loving and loved kids and, and, and cared for the, the well, welfare and even the earthly justice of widows and orphans, that this Jesus, this suffering servant, would come and make all wrong things right, make all, all wrong things right. I think about Romans 8:37, and all these things, we who in Christ are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul just got done saying, will persecution separate us from the love of God? What's the answer to that? No, it won't. Will death separate us from the love of God? No, it, no, it won't. We are more than conquerors in Christ because the, the conquering Christ will do and has done over sin and will do on the earth is ours. It's ours and it's for his glory and, and our good. We are more than conquerors in Christ. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, Jesus said, toward the end of his ministry, That in me you may have peace, while in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have what? I have overcome this world. It doesn't look like it. I don't see it here. I've been wronged. I've actually wronged people. The Lord didn't prevent me from doing that. And I, I hate that I've done that. I see this happening over here in the world and over there to Christians and over here to the unborn I see this happening to those who don't deserve it, who, who believe they're superior and treat minorities a certain way, and that's unjust. We see that there's still poverty, there's still fatherlessness and homelessness. I don't, I don't see this so-called conquering in the world. But we know that he has won the battle on sin and death. He will soon come, take off the ball cap, and shave the mustache, as it were, shed the the human form and come as God and judge. This is the Christ we worship. A few questions as we wrap up. Does, Does this victory over sin and death inspire hope in you? Does this coming judgment give you peace during difficult times? Does it cause you to quietly endure persecution and suffering? Does his impending judgment of the world's wicked and evil comfort you? We were talking at men's breakfast about the persistent widow. It's a parable Jesus told to to force and and command his disciples to continue to pray for God's judgment and God's justice, that God will bring justice. And it's a widow who had probably probably been wronged, and Jesus basically making the point that even if an unrighteous judge would, if you annoy him enough, uh, give you justice, how quickly then Will a righteous judge give justice to his people? And what's interesting is the chapter before, just at the end of chapter 17, it's about the coming of Jesus. It's about the second coming of Jesus that we look forward to justice. That it is not our own. Vengeance is His. God is so patient with sinners and with sin. And maybe that's you this morning. Praise God for His patience for you and believers that we would pray to find we would pray for those that they would find forgiveness in the name of Christ before he comes to judge ultimately I love this just to balance the sermon out a little bit more second Peter 3 9 says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance The reason he hasn't come back during the sermon is because he's he's being patient with sin. He's being patient for sinners. Christ is our soon coming king. And this is the the Christ. This is the king, the ruler, with currently, as we speak, all glory, all honor, all dominion and sovereign rule in all of the world. And while he hasn't come to, to show us that yet, We know that it's true, and this is, in fact, the Christ we worship and going to continue to worship. Let's pray.